Reacting to the world's best science, the Naked Scientist Newsflash. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Katani, and let's kick off with a look at some of this week's top science stories and life coming from outer space, Kat. Absolutely. Regular listeners may remember that back in March we covered a story in which US researchers discovered that the simple molecules needed to make amino acids, those the building blocks of proteins, may have hitched a ride to Earth on meteorites. Now researchers working on fragments of a large meteorite that exploded over Lake Targish in Canada back in the year 2000 have found more evidence that the molecules of life may have come from space. Led by Canadian researcher Dr Chris Hurd and publishing their results in the journal Science this week. The team think that some of the smallest molecules need to build proteins formed out in space in the swirling mess of forming planets and stars more than four billion years ago. But that's not all. The new results suggest that some of this material got swept up into large asteroids and then modified through chemical reactions with water inside the asteroids to create more complex chemicals. Then chunks of these asteroids broke off and went shooting through space, depositing these vital chemicals on Earth and possibly many other planets too. So what did these researchers actually do? Well, they carried out detailed analysis on four pieces from the meteorite that had fallen in different places on the lake, and they found evidence of many organic chemicals that are needed to make these building blocks of life, including simple amino acids, which are needed to build proteins. Now, their results suggest that the organic chemicals in the asteroid formed when dust got mixed with ice out in deep space and then got heated up by radioactivity. Now, this melted some of the ice, making liquid water that seeped through the asteroid Asteroid, causing reactions that produced the chemicals needed to kickstart life when they fell to Earth. And so what does this tell us about how life could have evolved, certainly on this planet, but maybe on other ones as well? Well, intriguingly, the team's results show that the levels of organic chemicals may vary widely, even within the same meteorite. They found different levels of these chemicals in, in these different bits from the same thing. And from what we know about biochemical reactions, it's likely that there's a pretty small range of concentrations at which these chemicals can actually usefully kick off the processes that lead to the development of more complex molecules and ultimately to living organisms. So while it's looking more likely that the ingredients for life may have been delivered from space. We also need to look at many more different samples from other meteorites to see what kinds of amounts of these chemicals are actually being dropped on the planet and whether they would be the right amount to get life going. So they analyse the meteorite. You can see these various chemicals in there which seem to suggest that that could be a source of those chemicals on the early Earth. How do we know, though, that that meteorite wasn't contaminated by those chemicals getting into it after it had landed or on its way in? Well, that's a really good question because that's been a problem with these kind of studies for a long time. People pick up these rocks and they're already, you know, covered in muck from the Earth. But unlike most of the other meteorite strikes that have hit the planet, this one hit a sub-zero temperature frozen lake. And local people were very careful to gather the meteorite samples very quickly after the meteorite hit and then kept them frozen, helping to reduce the chances of contamination and degradation of these chemicals. Now, the scientists think that the samples from the lake are the cleanest ones we've got and almost as good as going up into space and sampling asteroids directly. But there are plans underway to send a spacecraft up to go and sample some material from asteroids. So hopefully some more exciting answers coming our way soon.
Genius. That's fantastic. Thank you, Kat. Now, they said there's no smoke without fire. Uh, well, this week, scientists have got to the bottom of the claim by people who smoke that when they smoke, they have a lower appetite. And also people who quit smoking say that they put on a lot of weight having stopped smoking. This has been suspected as being down to nicotine, partly because if you dose experimental animals with nicotine, they do lose weight. But the actual molecular clockwork going on in the brain, the pathways that subserve that effect, has never actually been known until now because a group of researchers at Yale in America, this is Jan Miner and his colleagues, have got a paper in Science this week where they have discovered what those pathways are. Now, they did this in quite an ingenious way. So they started with experimental mice, and they used a, a family of drugs which mimic the action of nicotine in the brain, but they only bind or work in specific subsets of nerve cells in the brain. And one of the agents, a drug called cytosine, was capable of directly mimicking this appetite-depressing effect of nicotine in some experimental mice. And one of the regions where this cytosine drug works is in a part of the brain's hypothalamus. And the hypothalamus at the bottom of the brain contains a number of nerve clusters, some of which are directly linked to how hungry you feel and going out and getting food. They actually make you go and eat. So what the researchers then said, well, let's have a look in some of these regions and see how they are actually influencing or being influenced by nicotine and feeding behaviour. So then they tracked down a region called the arcuate nucleus and a population of cells in there called POMC cells. That stands for pro-opiomelanocortin. That's what the cells make. And they found that if they uh, put some cells in a dish and added nicotine to them, that they would become strongly active. They would produce lots and lots of bursts of activity and secrete lots of this pro-opiomelanocortin signal. And this they would squirt, for want of a better word, into an adjacent region of the hypothalamus called the paraventricular nucleus, which is also concerned with feeding behaviour. And... When you look in that region, you find that this particular chemical turns off the activity of nerve cells there. So putting all that together, it looks like what's going on is that when people smoke, nicotine binds to certain receptors, chemical docking stations, on cells in the hypothalamus. It activates those cells which squirt an appetite-suppressing chemical into the parts of the brain that are concerned with feeling hungry and wanting to put food into yourself. This depresses the activity of that region. So if you then stop smoking, rather like someone who's had their foot on a spring for a long time and suddenly removes the spring, it pings up, right? The part of the brain that's been suppressed by this nicotine signal for a long time suddenly bursts in activity and it makes you feel very much more hungry. And to actually quote from the paper, as the researchers say... Understanding this, whilst it's academically sensed, uh, sort of useful in itself, could be useful in producing new drugs that are designed to prevent weight gain following smoking cessation, which would be nice, but more importantly, also to tackle obesity and its related metabolic disorders. In other words, we could use our understanding of why people don't want to eat when they smoke in order to usefully suppress energy intake in people who are maybe carrying a bit too much weight or maybe have diabetes as a complication. Good stuff. Mmm, pro-opio melanocortin. Tasty. Um, also this week, scientists have shown that the adult heart contains stem cells called epicardial stem cells that can be triggered by a signal called thymosin beta-4 to produce new muscle cells if part of the heart is damaged. Now, this week, Chris spoke with the paper's author, Professor Paul Riley from UCL. The problem we were trying to address was the fact that the adult human heart is unable to repair itself following a heart attack and following injury. So we were keen to exploit the fact that there is a cell type in the adult heart that is also found during development, so when the heart is actually forming during pregnancy, 
to try and recapture some of the potential of these cells during the building of the heart to actually mend and repair the heart in the adult. So sort of recapitulate the embryonic state in the disease state so that the the damaged bit does regrow. That's right. We're not the first group to describe the potential for stem cells that might be existing in the heart. But the cells that have previously been described are very rare and in fact they don't become heart muscle or blood vessel cells very readily and if they do they're very immature so they're not really functional. What we wanted to do was to find a much more tractable or better target cell type and the cell type we chose contribute to both the blood vessel development and also to muscle cells of the developing heart and these cells are called epicardial cells. And they're there in the adult so they could be potentially recruited in an injury? That's right. They line the outside of the muscle of the heart in the adult and they're thought to have basically stopped doing what they need to do because they've contributed during development and then their sort of activity, if you like, is switched off. And so the key thing from our point of view is to try and reactivate that program and to try and get those cells to turn the clock back and behave more like they do in the embryo. And how did you actually approach that? We already knew from some previous work that a very important protein called thymosin beta-4, if that was lost in function in mouse hearts, the heart failed to form properly and didn't make the coronary blood vessels. And the defect was at the level of these embryonic epicardial cells. So what we then did was we took a huge leap of faith where we added thymosin beta-4 back to adult cells in preparations to try and see if thymosin beta-4 was both necessary during development but also sufficient to activate the adult cell type and fortunately for us thymus and beta 4 proved very good at uh, making these cells divide migrate and become in this instance smooth muscle cells and um, some fibroblast cells and also some endothelial cells and these are key cell types of both the coronary vessels and also the sort of skeleton of the heart What we didn't know at the time was whether or not they had any potential to make heart muscle, and that's been the nature of this particular study. What did you actually do to try and track what these cells could do in the context of an injury? This study um, was really based on two findings back in 2008 that said that the embryonic epicardial cells could also contribute to the muscle of the heart. And in that study, one of the groups used a transgenic mouse. So this mouse was driving a green fluorescent protein in the epicardial cells during heart development by virtue of one of the embryonic genes that's expressed. This is switched off in the adult. So we reasoned that if we're reactivating an embryonic potential in these adult cells, maybe we're also really restoring embryonic gene expression. So we took that mouse and added thymosin beta-4 for a number of days And we were able to switch on this green label of the adult cells. So what we've done then is we've reactivated an embryonic gene program and we were able to watch what those cells did in response to an injury where we induced a heart attack in the mice. And in this instance, we were able to observe a proportion of them becoming new heart muscle. And there's no way that these glowing green cells could have come from any other source? Well, that is actually a a really good question. In fact, it's a question posed to us by the reviewers of of the study that was published in Nature. And the key point there was that we may have just been looking at existing muscle cells that had turned on the green fluorescent protein, that had just switched on the gene program in existing heart cells. And so what we had to do, actually, to disprove that completely 
um, was to do cell transplantation experiments. So we took cells that were labeled from a donor animal that had undergone this thymosin beta-4 treatment and then injury and put them into a non-transgenic, unlabeled host mouse. And that mouse had also undergone um, priming with thymosin beta-4 and injury. So we put green cells into, if you like, a white background within the heart. And we were able to watch these cells then become heart muscle. So the bottom line here is that you've identified there is a population of cells, albeit they're there in small numbers. You can turn them on and they can locate the right place to go to and turn into the right sorts of cells to repair damage without people having to add new cells, which has up until now been the dogma. That's correct. So the key point was, yes, resident cells do exist in the heart that can be reactivated, and when they do that, they can repair significantly the damaged area. And so we were also able to assess that functionally as well and assess heart function, and that was done using magnetic resonance imaging studies where we showed that the heart function as a result of this sort of treatment and so on was improved by about 25%. Which is a huge improvement and something no one even thought was feasible. That was Paul Riley from UCL. And the next step in that research will be to produce an artificial form of thymosin beta-4, which is the agent that activates those stem cells. Cap. And now to a new approach to tackling deafness. Researchers at the University of Essex have designed a new software system that's helping them to develop a radical new type of hearing aid tailor-made to an individual's needs. Here's Jane Reck. Hearing aids work on the general principle that if you're finding it hard to hear something, you simply turn the volume up. Fine if you're talking to one person in a quiet room, but if you're in a noisy environment, then everything is amplified. Now unique computer modelling techniques combined with new ways of carrying out hearing tests are revolutionising the way that hearing loss and impairment is diagnosed and treated. Professor Ray Medis is leading the work at the University of Essex. Hearing consists of a number of stages between the sound arriving at the ear and then the signal going up to the brain. And the computer model tries to represent each one of these stages separately. The tests that we use involve two measurements. One concerns tuning and the other one concerns compression. Tuning refers to the situation where you can hear one sound and tune out background sounds. It's a bit like a radio where you can tune into one radio station but you don't want interference from another station. Now with normal hearing, this tuning takes place naturally. So one of our tests focuses on that particular problem. Compression is concerned with how intrusive other sounds are when they become louder. So normally we can tune out another sound if it's quiet, but as it increases in intensity, then we have more difficulty in tuning it out. A person with hearing loss often has a particular difficulty in tuning out irrelevant sounds. And so our compression measure is particularly concerned with increasing the intensity of a sound and then noticing how that comes to make it difficult to listen to a particular focal sound. Strange as it may seem, it was the art of dressmaking that inspired Ray and his team to take this tailor-made approach to the diagnosis and treatment of hearing impairment. When generating a computer model for a patient with hearing loss, we always start off with a normal model and we try and make a single adjustment which refers to the particular pathology 
which we feel is causing the problem for that particular patient. When you have a dress made, the tailor measures your body size, then changes the shape of the dummy to represent your body size, and then cuts and sews the clothing so that it fits the dummy. And the reasonable expectation is that when the customer comes back, the clothing will fit perfectly. Now, we believed that we could do the same thing with hearing impairment. We already have a model of normal hearing, so by making certain adjustments, we could make the dummy simulate impaired hearing. And the idea was we could then use that dummy to fit the hearing aid, so we would adjust the hearing aid so that we got the best possible output from the impaired hearing dummy. Our hope is that we will be able to use the hearing dummy to make these adjustments before the hearing aid is supplied to the patient. In other words, the hearing aid should be fitted to the dummy just like a dress will be fitted to a tailor's dummy and then when the patient comes back, the aid should be perfectly suited to their particular needs. Supported by the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council, this cutting-edge work has also led to a prototype design for a new type of hearing aid. Because our primary interest was in developing computer models, we came to realise that hearing aids respond differently to sounds compared to a normal hearing individual. So it seemed to us that we could build a hearing aid that simulated normal human hearing. So it compressed the sound in the same way, tuned the sound in the same way, and dealt with variations in level in the same way. So we have designed a new type of hearing aid which uses something called instantaneous compression. Currently in hearing aids, uh, sound is compressed, but it takes a little while for the compressor to respond to the sound levels. And this gives rise to some complications. But by simulating normal human hearing, we've been able to produce instantaneous compression without the distortion which everybody used to believe was an unavoidable accompaniment of instantaneous compression. So a number of aspects of this research are cutting edge. The research is a world first in a number of respects. First of all, uh, this will be the first model to represent a number of different kinds of hearing impairment. It is also the first attempt anybody has made to go through the complete cycle, that is measuring the hearing loss, designing the hearing dummy, adjusting the hearing aid using the hearing dummy, and then modifying the hearing aid to suit the patient. So it's the first time anybody has attempted to go through that complete cycle. The new approach has simplified the complicated laboratory testing process, significantly cutting down on the time it takes and the number of trials involved, along with the level of expertise required. Within four years, we could see this system of testing in widespread use, along with the new type of hearing aid. That was Jane Reck from the EPSRC, and there's an audio slideshow on this research on YouTube. You can find it by typing an EPSRC video into YouTube's search engine. Thank you, Kat. And if you'd like to follow up on any of the stories we've covered this week, there's more info and the references online at thenakedscientist.com forward slash news.
The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.